Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. A quick announcement before we get to today's business. Robin Pearson, the host of the podcast, uh, The History of Byzantium, which has been going for many years now, uh, invited me onto his uh, show, uh, where we had a lot of fun talking about the 10 best Byzantine emperors, uh, ranked from 10th to number one. Obviously a very subjective exercise, but one that was shaped by uh, the kind of experience that I gained by writing a thousand-year history of Byzantium, looking at the big picture. Anyway, check that out if you want, uh, in addition to the rest of Robin's podcast. By the way, shout out to Robin. He's done a lot to bring uh, Byzantium to thousands and thousands of people in an accessible entertaining and informed way and I have had students in my class come up to me and say I'm taking this class because I've listened to Robin's podcast (laughs) and so that's a tremendous service so thank you Robin. In fact today's episode is devoted to and dedicated to um, a set of people who make it possible for us to have these communications for us to have knowledge of the civilization that we study and in fact all history but whose work often takes place in the background and isn't as recognized as it should be, especially by non-academic audiences, and I know a lot of you are non-academics. And I'm referring specifically to the editors who work at presses who publish our work. This is an absolutely crucial function for academic research. So Publishing your work is very important, but there are also criteria of quality control and kind of gatekeeping and especially peer review, that have to be implemented by someone. And while we all participate in that process, there is a kind of nexus where it all takes place, and that is the editorial process at a reputable academic press. This is important not only for the quality control and dissemination of knowledge, but also even for academic careers. Getting published is very important for that. And there are people who play a critical, if often unseen, role in that process. And these are our our editors. A couple of years ago, I thought of inviting one of my editors onto the podcast to explain what I'll call the process. That is, how do you go about getting your book published in a major, reputable academic press? But right at that moment, I was preempted by one of my editors, Michael Sharp, at Cambridge University Press, the UK office who released a video on YouTube, um, which you can go find if you search for Michael Sharp, Publishing Academic Monographs, which very lucidly explains the process. And Michael has done more than most people to promote and advance our fields in classics and Byzantine studies. He's the ideal person to do that. He is responsible for publishing very, very many books, monographs, edited volumes, and so on every year. So you should go Look at that video if you're curious about what the process looks like. I also have in mind to do an episode on peer review, uh, which is a very interesting kind of fraught but necessary topic as well. I'm, I'm saving that for later. And another perspective that I wanted to get was that from inside the academic publish- publishing house. As you can imagine, many of them, or all of them, have been subject to the same financial pressures that everything else in the world has been. It is increasingly more expensive to do the work that is to produce the product, 
and the number of institutions and people who can afford it correspondingly declined, by which I mean library budgets are not as robust as they used to be, so librarians have to make difficult choices about what to purchase and what not. So all of this puts a lot of financial pressure um, on an institution that's you know, not really designed to make profit in the first place, but has to at least break even and get by. And in this particular case, to do it by publishing fairly esoteric <laughs> monographs um, on historic, historical arcana. So this is a bit of a challenge. And I can't tell you how many times in all of the years that I have been in this profession, I've heard about the imminent demise of the academic monograph um, that would take with it the academic presses or many of them and so forth. And this demise, in theory, would come about from a, a, pos a range of possible causes, from a switch in promotion standards from the monograph to a series of articles, from the in a financial inability of many presses to publish that many books, leading to a crisis in the profession because, as I said, our careers and kind of benchmarks of career advancement are pegged to publications and so forth. Fortunately, that has not happened. We are still facing all the crises that neoliberalism has brought to our profession, but as far as I can tell, our publishing system is not in fear of imminent collapse. And periodically, there are some very promising and exciting new initiatives and new projects. And we're going to speak with someone from one of those today. So specifically, there are very, very old academic presses, um, especially those that are affiliated with very old universities especially university presses like Cambridge University Press, which goes back to uh, the 15th century or something like that. But in addition to the university presses, there are also private academic presses. They do the same kind of academic work using the same systems, peer review and so forth, but they are private and not affiliated uh, with a university in the same way. And one of the most interesting that has emerged in recent years is Arc Humanities Press. My guest today is Anna Henderson, who is a senior acquisitions editor at Arc Humanities Press, uh, which I want to say is based in the UK, but as you will hear, its members are all over um, and a very interesting group. And they've published a number of very interesting volumes. <laughs> yes, one of my own too. <laughs> That's not why I'm saying that. But by all means, go to their website and see the very, very interesting topics that they've published on in a number of different formats, including your traditional monograph-length book, but also a shorter book um, that you know, I would call something like 30,000 words is lingo, um, that is somewhere between a very, very, very long article and a very short book. And you know, there are some topics that are appropriate for that um, format. And so it's very nice that they have those books. Um, they're also very affordable. So that's a very nice format. So I thought it would be very interesting to get a perspective uh, from Anna, uh, precisely because this is a new publishing venture that a group of scholars managed to launch um, at a time that would not usually be considered very uh, favorable for you know new academic ventures of this kind, but, it, but that has done a lot of very good work and appears to be quite successful. So you know, kudos to the team at Arc Humanities Press. So I will leave it to Anna to explain the rest. Anna Henderson, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks very much, Anthony. It's great to be here. Yes, it was a real pleasure to find you. And, you know, we we, we made contact years ago um, when I published the book uh, with your series, uh, which many of my readers will know about it. It's actually circulated quite a bit. Um, and I really wanted to have someone on the podcast from the publishing side of things. And especially someone like you, who is a scholar, you'll tell us all about that, too. So you can tell us a little bit about the interface between scholarly research and publishing, because editors and publishers are one of the kind of more hidden aspects of the production of knowledge that I mean, hidden, not hidden as you know, you're not trying to hide, obviously, but that general audiences know least about that part of the process. Right. Sure. And it's it. I, I think it's very important that they know how scholarly knowledge is not so much produced as made made available. And you're the people who facilitate that, and you play a very very crucial and important role, um, not just in making the knowledge um, you know publicly available, but also in shaping it in all kinds of ways. And uh, different presses do that in very different ways. And so I wanted to have your perspective uh, here on the podcast. So why don't we start? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into academic publishing? Yeah, great. That's a good place to start. I I did an English degree originally, um, long a long time ago, um, and I guess publishing is in some ways a sort of natural progression from an English degree. But I did toy with law for a bit. Um, and I taught English abroad for a year in Hungary, which was quite interesting. Mm. But I sort of came back and thought, no, law is too much rote learning. I'm going to go for the more interesting option, which publishing seemed to be. And uh, started looking around for a job. And eventually I managed to find my first job um, by bumping into someone at a Cocteau Twins gig. Um, they were a 90s band uh, who were playing down the road from where I was living at the time and um, got talking to a chap who was a friend of a friend who happened to be working for this computer magazine publishing company. And it was almost like I was able to sort of pull out my CV from my pocket and hand it to him because I'd been sort of preparing for publishing. And um, my parents' house happened to be just along the road from where the, the where the band was playing. So on the way home, I actually popped in, got a copy of the CV, gave it to this chap, and he took it back to his boss the next day. And um, I got an interview on the strength of that, which was quite good fun. And it was, it's one of those um, experiences that really shows how it's those personal, informal connections that can mm. often get you jobs. Um, and... Um, yeah, I, I did that for a couple of years and it was really good grounding as a sub-editor and just getting to know a bit about um, the technology of publishing, I guess. Um, but then I moved on and uh, quite soon after that, got a job working for University of Exeter Press. And that was really my first proper job in academic publishing. And... Um, worked well for me for several years. I, I focused in on the medieval studies after a while, having started off in production, and Exeter was well known for its uh, editions of texts. And um, I actually got to go off to Leeds International Medieval Conference once a year. And um, I think at the time, when was it? After about 10 years, in fact, 
I decided I wanted to go off and do a medieval studies MA. So I sort of took a career break from the publishing um, and almost like gamekeeper turned poacher, as they say. Um, and, and that was really, I think, inspired by going to Leeds and seeing all these medievalists together at the at the Congress. Um, and I went and did a medieval studies at Manchester University and uh, got to dabble with manuscripts at the John Rylands um, Library and also to, to, to study history, which actually I hadn't studied at school. I, I jumped across to geography. Um, so I'd done literature, medieval literature at university, but not history at all. So this was my second chance, I guess, medieval studies. And then I went on and did a, a cultural history PhD, which was inspired by the, the course on the biotapestry that I did mm. as part of my medieval studies MA. Um, but I, I kind of took a, a reception approach. I, I actually looked at uh, tapestries inspired by the biotapestry, but created around the British Isles in the last 50 years which not a lot of people know about and, and no one has studied. And this seemed like a good form of public history to sort of look at and um, interrogate. And, and so I did that for three or four years and, and grappled that into a, a thesis eventually. Um, though actually I found it quite frustrating as an academic publisher I thought it should be easier to do a PhD than it turned out to be. It, it, it's, you know, everybody has their trials and tribulations, I think, doing a PhD. And I certainly had mine in that there was there was almost too much information to grapple into a sort of proper through argument to, to sort of make um, a proper thesis, I guess. But but I got there in the end and um, came out the other side. And, yes, ma'am. Many colleagues face the problem of not having enough information, uh, and some have the problem of uh, you know abundance of information and trying to sort out what you what you need and want from all of it. Yeah. yeah Did you have a chapter on parodies of the tapestry? Um, not exactly, but one of the tapestries I studied did have some de definitely some comic elements to yeah. it, and I did sort of discuss comic um, aspects of the tapestries because I think there is a sort of level in which they sort of um, they they waver between com comedic and parodic and you know different yeah. um, different elements it was it was interesting I sometimes but, uh, use, I, I see it used in political cartoons Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so tell us, how did you uh, come to ARC public, Humanities Publishing? And uh, tell us a little bit more about ARC. Yeah, sure. Okay, so so when I got out the other end of the, the PhD um, food chain, um, I, I didn't want to become an academic. I'd, I'd never really thought of myself as doing that. And I think um, perhaps more than some PhD students, I was very, very aware of how difficult it is, of course, to, to find tenure at the other end of um, doing a PhD. Um, and so I'd been uh, sticking my toe back in the water of academic publishing as I was coming out of the PhD. Uh, worked for IB Taurus for a little bit, mm. um, but they were taken over by Bloomsbury. 
And around about that time, Simon and I, Simon Ford at ARC, started talking and haven't really looked back since. Um, ARC was a, an ideal move for me, really, to allow me to go back into the medieval sphere, um, which is what I'd obviously brought from Exeter. And ARC seemed like um, it was obviously the new kid on the block at that point. I think um, it was only about four years old when when I joined. Um, so I've sort of been there for half its life now. It's um, just under 10 years old now. And Simon had set it up, um, Simon having come from Breckles and previously to that, he was the person who actually invented Leeds Medieval Congress, in fact, um, mm. to counterbalance Kalamazoo. Um, so he's someone who thinks outside the box and that excited me. And he'd thought up this idea of founding ARC as a, a specialist pre-modern publisher. Um, which that there aren't many of at all. And um, it was something where he, he's, he'd become frustrated at Breckles in some ways by lack of knowledge of the academic sphere within academic publishing. And that was something that he felt he could bring to the table. Um, and also um, wanting to focus down on that pre-modern subject area um, and allied subjects. Um, the university presses, of course, in America and also in the UK have, have a much broader range. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll publish in medieval studies, but perhaps only 20 to 30 titles a year, um, your pens and Penn States and the like. Um, whereas we've very quickly, um, moved up and got 50 titles coming out almost a year being able to really focus our energies on, on, on the areas in which we've got subject knowledge. And so, so I think we've, we've become quite prominent within pre-modern studies quite quickly, even though we're small and even though we've only been around for 10 years because we've, we've got this critical momentum, I guess. And we've also got that good balance of having knowledge of academia. Um, nearly all, in fact, all the editorial staff have PhDs behind us, but also publishing expertise as well. So we've got that mix of academic and commercial. Mm -hmm. And we like to think that by bringing that to the table, we can, by knowing a bit about what you guys have going on, um, we can sort of help to focus our efforts in ways that help with the priorities that you have in terms of publishing. Um, the other thing to say about ARC is, of course, it's 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 part of an ecosphere, um, an ecosystem where in the last 50 years, we've gone from publishing perhaps 2,000 copies of one book, one book at mm -hmm. a time. You know, there was a, a there was a far fewer books being published but much larger quantities per title. And within those 40 or 50 years, that perhaps the average number of copies that you print of a book are more like 200. Wow. Um, so it's a massive reduction in the actual quantities of um, books that we, we publish, we print. But the number of titles we publish across the board is far larger across all mm -hmm. academic publishers and that's partly 
Um, that works for, for us because we need to publish more books in order to make the same amount of sales. Mm -hmm. But also it works for academics in terms of the pressure that they've come under to publish during that period. Um, it's far more, more important to publish to get on, I think. Yeah, so you have a very interesting catalog. And I have to say, ARC has emerged very dynamically on the scene of medieval publishing. And I, I include Byzantine studies in that. You've, you've you have a very broad approach to, you know, the medieval. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and I was actually just looking at your catalog just moments before um, we met yeah. today. And I saw a whole number of titles that I hadn't seen before. And I'm quite fascinated by So I started filling up the card and then you appeared. <laughs> anyway, um, it, so you seem to have a number of um, a, a more... Um, a diversified approach to academic publishing. So some volumes are some of the, the smaller and much more affordable. Others are the more, you know, hardcover, uh, pricier um, academic titles. C could you talk a little bit about the, um, just the, the, the articulation of the publishing program? Like how do you fit books into different categories? Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, as a, an academic publisher, our, our primary, um, book form is the academic monograph, I guess. And and that's um, your hardback and digital form, relatively high priced, aimed at libraries. But right from the beginning, we also wanted Past Imperfect, which is the small books you're talking about, mm -hmm. to be, be one of our calling cards, I guess. And um, that's something that paperback is the primary form I guess, although we do also publish it digitally, but it's 15, 15.95 in pounds, a little bit more in dollars. And it's very much aimed at the individual reader. And um, we sometimes call them airport reading in that, that they are a book that you could sit in the airport and yeah. say, I want to get to grips with this subject, this subject, and this subject. You, you buy your past imperfects and um, an academic expert will lead you through the subject and you being a reader who might be a scholar in an allied subject or an undergrad or even a general reader, but your your author will lead you through the subject and perhaps give a slightly idi idiosyncratic take on that subject as well. So, yes. so we encourage our authors to be a bit more, think outside the box rather than just this is an introduction, you know, these are all the sources that these are all the people who have written about this before. And I have no opinion. We want you to put your opinion in there. That's important. That's very nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. But in terms of who we encourage to write for what, um, it, it's a mixture, really. I mean, it, we certainly thought of the past Imperfect series to begin with as, as something where we invite you as in, uh, scholars who are already experts in their field to write um, books for us. But gradually we've we've invited people to come to us with proposals to some extent because there are gaps in 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 the subject's coverage that, that we haven't necessarily filled. And an expert in a subject might necessarily not might not necessarily be a senior scholar um, mm -hmm. these days. Um, so yeah, we're a bit more inclusive. Um, and and then, you know, we like to think that possibly the same scholars might also write a monograph for us at some point as well. So there's, you know, um, it, it depends on what you're writing on and, and when. Um, the other thing 
I should throw into the mix is that we we increasingly talk to scholars about the possibility of writing mini graphs for us, which are uh, obviously somewhere in between a past imperfect, which is about 35,000 words, and your monograph of 80,000 words or more. Um, the mini graph sits at the sort of 50, 60, 70,000 words um, total, depending on what the subject requires. And it, it's, it's, it's a book form that's interesting. I think often people haven't really thought about this, um, but, it, but it's a form that might, with the, with the increasing interdisciplinarity that many scholars um, embrace, you might have a main field that you're, you know, you're writing a, a monograph on, which might be, you know, you might be chipping away at over the years, but you might have other research um, areas that you're also interested in. Perhaps you've written an article or two over several years, and you might feel that there's more to say about that subject, but not something that you'd want to extend to full monograph level. And a mini-graph might satisfy that need, in a sense, mm -hmm. um, for you and uh, for the readership. Um, and so we encourage people to think about that as an option. It's also an option for people who perhaps are involved in a big uh, European Research Council funded project where there are lots of outputs um, planned, perhaps a couple of edited volumes, perhaps articles, but you as PI or as a postdoc perhaps might feel that your findings have have grown into something more substantial over the course of a project. And you might feel that Minigraph is a good format for that, um, to, to show that, you know, what you've got out of it is more substantial and, and what you've been working on. Um, and a third way I think that format's useful is perhaps as a, a way of rethinking the the PhD to book conversion. Because hmm. often I think, having done a PhD myself, that there might be two or three chapters that really shine within a PhD, or one or two that are really original. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, especially if you've gone away from your PhD for a couple of years, and then you've come back and read your thesis with fresh eyes, being a bit more ruthless about shaking it up, taking those really central chapters, reframing them with new introduction and conclusion, perhaps adding a chapter of research that you've done since that ties it all together, that can make for a much more coherent approach to using your thesis than the sort of traditional Again, I use the term chipping away at uh, um, the PhD, the thesis, to make it a more um, readerly experience, shall we mm. say. Anna, you're exactly right. And the way the minigraph idea is excellent. And I remember when I was, I don't know, a late undergraduate student, early graduate, whatever, and I was becoming familiar with the modes of academic publishing. And it struck me as odd that academic knowledge was expected to fall into two categories, articles that are like 12,000 words or less, and monographs that are like 80 or 90,000 words or more. And at the time, because as I was naive and I was not yet sort of professionalized and socialized enough to not see the problems, 
I wondered, <laughs> so what happens to everything in between? Like, this doesn't seem like a natural division. Um, it seemed to be much more one driven by different um, like modes of physical publication, like the journal volume and the, the monograph. And so what happens to everything in between? And as a result, you get a, what is essentially a minigraph, a minigraph published in like four or five different articles scattered mm. throughout the journal, you know, ecosystem. Or a minigraph that's been padded out with just superfluous material to make a monograph. And anyway, so I hope that this model uh, works. It proves fruitful and because it seems to fill a very logical niche that, you know, anyway. Yeah, sure. And and we still publish that, those books in hardback and mm. um, digital and libraries are the main, yeah. the primary market for those. But we, we always have an eye to what we might paperback further down the line, because I do think that's an important part of our model. Um, again, you know, we see ourselves as a bit like a university press in all but name. But we also take sort of elements from the European model of publishing your Brills and your Breckels, um, who publish larger quantities of medieval studies books. But they have traditionally been resistant to the paperback, I think. You know, they, they tend to publish mm -hmm. a lot of high-priced edited collections and monographs yeah. and not want to paperback. And we want to be useful to the individual reader as as well as the library, although, you know, we acknowledge freely that um, libraries are our first market, um, but we, we want to be able to bolt on other things and cater to what our individual readers need as well. So I'm very glad that uh, press that's focused on, you know, medieval, you know, uh, knowledge, you know, publishing about the medieval world is, is uh, managing to succeed the way you are. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the pressures that academic publishing is generally under these days? Um, and, you know, how are you responding to those? I don't think our audience knows, you know, every sector of the economy is under <laughs> under pressure. Sure. So, yeah, right. yeah. Um, so what exactly is going on with academic publishing? Well, certainly, as you say, you know, the, the rising costs thing is something that is affecting the whole world, I guess, um, at the moment. And so that's not um, specific to publishing. The, the falling sales issue um, is something we've touched on a little bit already. The fact that the, the average number of sales per monograph is far lower than it was. And um, in a sense, all publishers have had to sort of embrace efficiencies in one way or another, I guess, in order to um, to help deal with um, that issue. Um, and in some ways, um, we've been helped by the fact that technology has allowed us to print in smaller and smaller quantities and still make a monograph viable. Because um, I think 20 or 30 years ago or longer ago, probably, people started predicting the death of the monograph. Mm -hmm. uh, a dire circumstance, and yet that hasn't come to pass, partly because of this business of us, us all publishing more in order to stay still in, in some ways. Um, but yeah, efficiencies are important, and um, ARC, it, it's been it, it useful, ARC's model of um, 
um, making efficiency is is that it's it's always been a remote publisher or almost always um, since very early on in that we all are scattered around the world but come together to meet um, mm. not quite weekly but we have a series of meetings that sort of pull us all together um, and we meet physically at, at Leeds and, and Kalamazoo sometimes as well um, and we managed to be a tight team as as well as being um, based in America and the UK and Australia. Um, and, and that means we don't have the overheads that your legacy publishers have. Um, the irony being that, of course, we we were remote before COVID and then COVID enforced remote on an awful lot of other publishers. And, and that many of those have gone back to sort of hybrid model since, I think. Um, but we sort of thrive and flourish on it, which is good. So um, the other thing, I guess, that the other big um, thing that we're all always coming to terms with is changes in digital technology and how those affect publishing mm -hmm. and also that whole publishing and institutional library interface. Because libraries have of course very much become purveyors of digital information to their readers um almost the book as the book as a physical object is almost an aside these days um which is a terrible thing for a publisher to have to say <laughs> but i'm thinking in terms of the big journals of course which yes. really exist online as their, their main um source um and and so we as publishers um, have obviously come to grips with ebooks, the, the um, digital form of, of the physical book. Um, and there, you know, we, we often get people saying, well, surely that makes things cheaper for you. Well, it doesn't really, because we still need to produce the physical form as well as the digital uh, alongside. Right. So it's a bit like um, you guys, hybrid teaching. Yes. Um, during COVID and having to offer more um, and to stay still in a sense. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the digital form is also, is obviously an important um, part of what we do. And um, digital sales increased a lot over COVID. I think it, it allowed libraries to really embrace that form. And also just to save on shelf space, of course, at, at yes. the same time. So they, it, it means that they can offer more books by being able to offer some in digital form or in both. So um, go on. Can I ask about the, the declining sales that you mentioned? Uh, so a couple of major factors that I can think of are declining university library budgets. Uh, that's just a function of the kind of austerity that they've been under for a long time. And also the arrangements among libraries to share books in like back in Ohio, we had um, Ohio Link, which was a very efficient system of sharing books among all the different universities in the state. So mm. that decreases, right, the, the, the absolute number of copies that the system as a whole buys. Uh, are there any other major drivers of the decline in, in book sales? Yeah, that, there's another thing a little similar to this, which is that um, aggregators... Um, offer something called patron-driven uh, purchasing, where often libraries are listing and cataloguing books to the readers. And for the readers, to all intents and purposes, they're on offer. They are, the library offers those books. 
But until the reader actually clicks through and opens that book and uses that book, you know what I'm going to say. We, the publisher, don't receive anything at all. Um, And often not until a particular threshold is reached in terms of number of um, readers, I believe. I think there are all sorts of models based on this sort of system these days, which... um, yeah. <laughs> I did not know this. They give I did you not know that system thought. existed. Wow. Yeah. yeah. There's data for you. It is data for you. You're right. And it's interesting that, um, you know, we've known about that for quite some time. Um, but what we have found is that the only thing you can do is embrace this and make sure that you have relationships with as many of these different intermediaries as possible mm. uh, because different libraries are signed up to different intermediaries or they might offer more than one and um, your book needs to be coming out of the hat in as many different um, varieties against you know different lists of medieval studies and other subjects as possible because that way um, it's more discoverable and people are more likely to click through. And so it's about making sure you've got very rich metadata and accurate metadata mm. being disseminated at all times, um, and, and particularly at certain parts in the publishing cycle for each book, and making sure you really um, put your feelers out and make sure you're on all those databases. Right. This explains why the presses have been asking me lately to provide much more metadata metadata about each chapter in each book. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, So what are some of the major differences between ARC and what you've called an academic press? So, uh, I mean, in terms of constraints or advantages or disadvantages that you have in relation to the academic presses, other than, okay, so you presumably you don't have you know, offices provided on a university campus or something like that. But what are some of the other main structural differences? Yeah, I'd still call us an academic press, but not a university press. Sorry, my yeah. uh, mistake. My mistake. I meant university <laughs> presses. Um, yeah. Yes, you're right. You replace academic with university in that question. Yes. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, so I guess the difference is, or, or rather, the similarity is that we still peer review every book proposal that comes through and every manuscript that is submitted. But we don't have to, I suppose, refer up the line to some university board, some internal board, um, which um, I think a lot of the university presses have to do to have final sign off of the book. So we rely on our internal expertise plus peer reviewers throughout the world um, to 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 deal in those those mm. matters and the other thing is that we're, it means we're not <laughs> subject to slash and burn university policies when it comes to their university presses i think in perhaps not so much recently but perhaps 10 15 20 years ago i know that quite a lot of north american um universities sort of cut radically their university press budgets and so sometimes that then resulted in you know there there will be a great list of people signed up um 
with their books waiting to be published and a great backlog in terms of the publishing process because the, the press had been cut in terms of what its ability to to publish um, a forward list. Um, so that's quite interesting. We don't we don't have to worry about those sort of vagaries of um, changes, changing yeah. of the guard, shall we say, in terms of policies within universities. Yeah. Equally, we don't have shareholders because we're a small, independent-run uh, yeah. press. But also we don't have big investors, so we have to be very... Um, careful and pragmatic about everything um and you know really think hard about what we're publishing and how we're publishing it yes and you you know board of trustees telling you how much alcohol you can have serve at a meeting or something like that (laughs) they seem to be very interested in that question in the u.s for some reason well Um, you see if you're an if you're working remotely the alcohol you know you can't (laughs) that's right Yes, that's what she was. Yeah. Um, so tell us uh, about Byzantine studies in particular. So where do they fit into your list as a whole? Okay. So I think the thing to say here is that we've right from the beginning we've not wanted to shoehorn, shoehorn Byzantine into a particular series. We're very much um, happy to see Byzantine pop up in different series across the press. So um, a material culture or cultural heritage cycle might be in our calm and visual and material studies series or our cultural heritage series. Um, What else have we got? Oh, we've got um, a book on the Battle of Manzikert coming out uh, in the next year or so, and that will be in our war and conflict series. And then... um, there's obviously the past imperfects, which we've talked about a bit, mm-hmm. and you yourself have published um, within. And um, that past imperfect series is is one of the perhaps the nicest fits for Byzantine studies, in that um, that series, together with another one which we call Beyond Medieval Europe, are very much embracing of the idea of wanting to go beyond traditional ideas of the medieval West um, and that have focused on Britain and bits of Western Europe and counterbalance that sort of traditionally sort of Anglo-centric and Western European-centric focus, I guess. Yes, you and you have done a very good job with that. So congratulations on my part. In fact, the very first episode of this podcast was on a book from the past imperfect ah, is that yes. the leonora neville that's yeah. right yes yeah. yes um and um i should actually go back and look at that series again uh because you know it's been now what uh three three over three years and um those books are ideal even for the podcast medium because i can i can recommend them to the audience yes. as something that they can reasonably get through in their busy days because they're most they're not academics um, so what's the rationale behind the Beyond Medieval Europe series? Uh, I mean, be, what's beyond, like, you mean beyond, like, the, you know, French yes. queens and British nuns? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's beyond medieval Europe, and in a sense, medieval Europe has uh, quote marks around yeah. it. So it means beyond traditional ideas of medieval Europe, yeah. ex- a more expansive perspective um, on it, because um, Central and Eastern Europe in particular have 
had a raw deal, I think. Byzantine mm-hmm. studies, the East, even Scandinavian studies to some extent has been um, a little um, under undersold, I guess, because yeah. um, I think uh, one of the, the people who explains this best is Christian Raffensperger, who mm-hmm. has written for the Past Imperfect series and, and in fact, um, was one of the founding editors of the Beyond Medieval Europe series right. um, in being someone who, who really wants to sort of expand that um, rather subjective and partisan um attitude to watch towards what's in and what's out and um um i know you talked to him about you know europe doesn't even look like a continent um on the map you know and um you know where are the ends where are the edges um in a previous podcast and i think that's it, it is very instructive to just sort of think beyond those traditional bounds and invite material from different broader um allied territories which they just right. were sort of sidelined in in discussions of medieval europe um originally yes in in and specifically in early modern discussions of medieval europe and that's kind of when the, these kind yeah. of paradigms emerged um yeah so if there's a uh, scholar of Byzantium out there and is interested in submitting a proposal to you. Uh, what kinds of topics are you mostly interested in? Um, or, you know, what would make for a good proposal in your eyes? Um, well, um, material culture is something we're interested in. Um, anything that looks at sources, new sources, I guess, um, new and interesting ways into history, um, such as uh, looking at the archaeology and the history, putting them together, um, perhaps looking at law um, and reinterpreting that. We've got um, Nathan Lightholm has written a book for us on um, elite Byzantine kingships mm-hmm. and and he is writing a second book for us and he's very much working with the legal documents i think to look at what can be explored in terms of families and their relationships to the slave and slavery and sort of unpicking the assumptions that seem to be sort of underlying what's actually in um legal documents period. Um, fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot of material that has its own very specialized discussions. So you mentioned material, uh, material culture, material history, uh, which obviously there's a lot that's being published by, you know, with lab results and in technical archaeological journals. Mm-hmm. And the same for law. It is a longstanding technical discipline, but it kind of operates in its own kind of esoteric jargon and with, you know, scholars who are talking only about legal texts. And I, I think what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, those materials can be brought out uh, from their more technical discussions and talked about in relation with social history, like, you know, put them into motion rather than talking about yeah. how just one text is influenced by another and you you, you stay within this kind of genre domain. So in the same way that literary texts were originally just seen as literature, but then we moved to thinking about, ah, what what else can they tell us? What can they tell us about culture? What can we derive from them in terms of cultural history? 
Yes. So it's it's loosening the the bounds of how we look at texts and other materials, I guess. So since you've seen the process from both sides, as an academic, you wrote a PhD, and as someone from within publishing, what are some of the more common misconceptions about academic publishing that you would like to clear up here? So are there, are there myths that you keep encountering over and over again, and you're having to say, well, no, actually... Yeah, yeah, that that's a lovely question. In fact, um, yeah, I I guess the the biggest myth is um, what we earn from from the price of of a book because people academics do tend to throw up their hands in horror at the price of your average academic mm. hardback. Um, for instance, ninety nine pounds is kind of the starting point at the moment for us. Um, it sounds like a lot of money, but what not a lot of academics know is that we get barely 50 pounds of that back to the publisher. And I think that's quite eye-opening, you know, that that 50% of it gets um, dispersed to other intermediaries in the process of publishing a book. So the 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 intermediaries who take a cut are the marketing and distribution and the fulfillment of sending out the books, mm -hmm. but also the library agents, people like EBSCO. Um, and of course, Amazon takes a, a large. Yes. And so all those uh, bodies slice their own little bit off and we might get barely 50 pounds from a 99 pound book. And of course, if you then apply that to a past imperfect, which is just under 16 pounds, that means we get just eight pounds back. So, um, I don't think I've actually said, but we're, yes, I did say earlier on that we're publishing about 50 books a year and they're a mix of past imperfects and monographs and mini graphs, which are priced less than the monographs, but not that much less. But if you think about that and the sort of quantities I've talked about us actually um, selling per book, we're not all earning enough money to go and buy a Mercedes, you can see very quickly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, it's especially for small monograph publishers, we're not doing it for the money, we're doing it for the love, honestly. <laughs> yes. So just to clarify, the 50% return, that's not your profit margin. That's the cover expenses. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, after the £50 back in the pocket, you then have to cover our salaries, cover the yes. printing and all the other overheads from <laughs> yes. yeah, from what's left. So so it's, it's yes, it, yeah. No, because a fifty percent profit margin would be something incredible. No, um, no, no, absolutely, yes. yes, that's absolutely not that at all. Yes, no, there's it's much, much less, and and yeah, that. Um, so, uh, tell us also a little bit about um, open access publishing, because I mean, just to be honest, on the academic side of things, I think open access is, you know, has a sort of moral high ground if you're making the argument, like. We want the knowledge that we produce to be as available to anyone. Um, from the author's side, we don't make that much money, you know, from publishing. Uh, that's not why we do it. Same as you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we kind of want it to be out there. Now, the process of, you know, creating, fashioning, packaging and publishing 
has expenses and this is obviously why we pay for books and pay for everything but ideally we would like it to be just available for everyone and a number of publishers have made some moves in that direction but obviously there are sort of economic constraints there um how do you see open access um you know what are, what are the opportunities and challenges for you there as you say it, on the surface it's a, a greater good but it's something where there isn't equity in the field for all in that you yourself could choose fairly easily as a tenure professor mm -hmm. as to whether you wish your book to be published open access or not. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you'd be able to provide institutional funding, presumably, possibly. Um, but an early career researcher or an independent scholar won't have access to the sort of funding that's required for open access. And publishers do have to cover their costs, um, whether a book is open access or printed, um, or, 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 or published traditionally, rather. Yeah. Um, and, and so somewhere that, that cost needs to be covered. And, and we see that as um, something that we'd like to redress where possible. So we have various schemes in place that sort of try to privilege early career researchers um, by producing a pot of money that we allows us to to fund at least one oh, of yes. those a year. Um, but but it's it's in the end the system um, operates with financial scarcity and there's never going to be enough money to publish everyone's um, book open access, I guess. Also, if I mean, if you if you made all publishing open access, um, you, you'd in effect be sort of blunting the instrument of the publisher's um, commercial expertise. Um, you know, you'd be you'd be reducing all risk and saying everything can be published. Um, Whatever, I guess. I mean, yep. not whatever, because the scholarly rationale would still presumably yes. be built into that. But that, but a book or a book can exist that is perfectly worthy in scholarly terms without it actually having a readership, can't it? You know, right. uh, and um, and so if your book is in the library but no one wants to take it out, arguably should it have been in the library? Yeah, the best model that I've come across and I'm involved in when it comes to open access is for technical journal publications. That is a lot of the foundational work that uh, wouldn't be commercial, but needs to be out there for the purposes of research. And so the two models that seem to make most sense here are some, um, you know, usually European um, academic institute that is funded usually by a government or something like that, that produces its own journal and puts it online as you can almost see it as an extended sort of government service. It's, you know, part of what you get with your taxes is research in this and that field. Um, and the other one is a group of scholars who decide to, you know, put their own time and labor and and sometimes resources in in publishing a journal online without it, you know, being owned by um, a, a, a press. A press. So, for example, Greek, Roman, and Byzantine studies that I'm on the board of, uh, all of the articles are published online. They're free and available, and there are some people who do a lot of work to make that happen. Um, but 
I, and I'm hoping that this model doesn't compete with yours at all. I mean, th these are the articles that are cited mm. in the footnotes of the things that you publish. Yeah, I, I think it, that's something to say about open access uh, is that it was conceived really with the journals in mind and originally yeah. with the scientific journals in mind. And it it, it carries over to humanities journals and the, the sort of thing you're talking about is exactly right and exactly what it is it should be used for. But but yes, it, it does fit slightly uneasily with monograph publishing, especially mm -hmm. in, in terms of the fact that the funding for open access for monograph publishing seems to be a bit of an afterthought in certain parts of the world. Right. I mean, I think Europe has embraced it, um, but the UK and the North America, it's more patchy in terms of how the funding streams um, are available or if they are available at all. It will depend very much on what sort of university you're at, how it's funded, size. Um, yeah. All right. Um, Adam, we have time for one more question here, and I, and I want to look to the future. So what do you see as the challenges that are coming to, you know, to your to your field? Um, what is ARC doing uh, either to prepare or to just create new opportunities and new models for itself? I think we've we've covered some of that already, in a yeah. sense, in that the, the mini graph format is definitely something that I see more academics embracing going forward and that we're very much happy to facilitate um so so that's the sort of key tenet and um that's keeping an eye on what individual readers want to read as well as um what libraries um need so paperbacking where where we can the the hardbacks uh, that we produce first for libraries and accessibly pricing them I guess is is important as well you know they have to be paperbacks priced um, towards the individual user um, and just keeping an eye on on the field really on on new and emerging current scholarship and helping to facilitate that by establishing new series, um, keeping talking to academics um, and sort of using our size as a form of agility in, in responding to, to, to what's going on in academia. You're exactly right. And I think that you, <laughs> your, your mention of the individual reader is very important here. And we, we mustn't lose sight of how important they are and that they are still a viable market. They're very interested in history. There are a lot of people who are interested in history. And I think it is a responsibility on the part of you know, scholars, especially tenured you know, uh, scholars, to produce um, their knowledge in a way that is accessible to the general reader. And this is something that will also benefit you because you can then sell books that are more affordable in larger quantities to those readers. And so there's a time when you do esoteric technical research and there's a time when you make it available to the general public. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's a responsibility that authors also have. Yeah, and I think it helps concentrate the mind of the academic writer yes. to think about the individual reader. And that plays into all the things we're talking about here. Um, that not losing sight for neither the, neither the publisher nor the author yeah. should yeah. lose sight of the end reader. 
Yeah, I, I had to keep that in mind when I was writing this very big general history that everything had to make sense in the end to the general reader, even if, you know, I threw up my hands in despair at some problems. and like, well, I'm not sure how to push forward with this, but maybe some here, I'll clarify what the problem is. Mm. Anyway, Anna, that's a great place to end this. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and also for the very important work that you do. Um, ARC is an amazing phenomenon of the past few years, at least in my field. I was just scrolling through all of your titles before we started this meeting and I'll go back to doing that right now. So I encourage everybody uh, listening to take a look at your uh, catalog, um, Arc Humanities Press. Um, there's so many interesting things that you're publishing. So thank you for, from all of us. Thank you, Anthony.